Thank you for joining us. This is episode 002 of Amateur 3D Podcast, a podcast for amateurs by amateurs, where we'll be sharing our thoughts and experience. Our panelists this week are myself, Franklin Christensen, and my friends, Kevin Buckner, Chris Weber, and Andy Cottom. And apparently, Kevin's printer and an angry duck. Let's start yeah. with what everybody's been... <laughs> Let's start with what everybody's been working on, Chris. Since you spoke up first, what have you been working on this week? Well, that wasn't me. That was a little little angry duck behind my chair. But sure, <laughs> that's what my grandpa um, always said too. <laughs> Damn barking spiders! No. <laughs> so, um, actually, I've not been printing anything this week. Um, there's been a little bit of stuff going on with work, but. Um, I have been looking up various things to be printing in the next coming two months for Christmas presents because I've got to be I've got to print things for about maybe a dozen people and then my daughter. Okay. Yeah. Nice. This is the time to pick that up for sure. Yeah. Kevin, what have you been working on this week? Uh so I recently got the finalized version of a role-playing game called um, Gods of Metal Ragnarok. Uh, it's it's all heavy metal themed, and so part I, of, I never would have guessed. <laughs> part of this uh, in, involves uh, having an altar that people p- put dedications on when they have more successes than they need. And so I went looking through my STL files and found something that I thought would make an appropriately metal altar and um then i went on thingiverse and uh got uh, an stl for the pick of destiny and um my plan is that after the piece that's printing right now is done i'm going to print up a bunch of those picks and those will be the tokens that the players will get to put on the altar as as the dedications so that's what i'm working on that's kind of cool making the tokens yourself huh yeah, that would be really neat. Andy, what have you been working on this week? Um, I've got I had two projects that I was going planning on doing, but haven't really got to yet that I'll probably start this next week here. Uh, but the two that I did do were just kind of simple things. I got a uh, strap keeper, like um, it's for my dog's collar. You know, you'll have the leftover piece of of a collar, and you slip it into a, a, a ring on the collar that kind of holds the, the flappy strap down. And they were just missing from, from her collar. No idea where they went. And I figured I'll sit down and design these for five minutes and then print them off for another five minutes. And it was just one of those things that was just real convenient to have and a fast print. I think it was only about five minutes to have them printed and, you know, a couple of cents in TPU. And now they work perfectly and will work there forever. I think the other project I'm working on here was uh, uh, my wife has has got to make a couple of games for my uh, uh, kid's class in his elementary school. And uh, she asked me if I'd print her off a couple of uh, spiders, um, like Black Widow spiders that she could use in a game uh, that she's coming up with. But, you know, it's going to be used with children. So another great reason to make them out of TPU because... You know, they'll bend and break things all day long. And uh, it's kind of like a uh, pin the tail on the donkey kind of thing where she's going to use a sticker on the back of our little spiders. And so we got those designed tonight. And I've got a bunch of bubbly TPU that uh, is currently sitting in the dehumidifier for a good 48 hours here. And then we're going to start printing those off. I think I need 40 of them and I could do uh, 12 per per build plate. So. I think those are my two projects for uh that's happening this week fun fun uh this week i have been working through a design for some toolboxes to hang from the cross members on my workbench and that's going to take up a lot of my bandwidth i think figuring out a better way to do that um i did design some cable management clips and i designed it actually looks like the old uh, roll-up window cup holder that you used to have in your car, but it's designed to hang from my workbench and hold the uh, spray bottle I use 
to help me uh, break down and clean my build plate whenever I scrub it down. You know, that's not something that you really see too often anymore, is those old school cup holders that clip into the windows of cars. I don't think I've seen one of those in stores for a while. No, but I've seen some of them on Thingiverse, but it's not for cups. It's for your sauce packets. From... Oh. <laughs> that so. almost makes more sense. Well, in the U.S., we like to have a dozen cup holders in the front half of the car. So <laughs> it kind of doesn't make sense to need a an extra one to hang from your window. Sort of. That, kind of, that was kind of an issue with my CRX. And before I had a 3D printer, I was actually uh, taking parts from a Nissan Sentra that had the little cup holder that it would, would pull out and, and expand. And I was going to mount that underneath my stereo. Nice. Cause it had no cup holders. <laughs> you could just eject the CD ROM. That would work just fine. <laughs> well, I guess in a car stereo, I guess not. Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> think about how they work. <laughs> so uh, this week's topic is systems. Um, and it looks like we got ourselves a bunch of general notes on systems. Andy, uh, what systems have been fascinating to you the most? Okay. Well, I focused on a little bit more of the FDM systems available today and uh, how many different ones are out there. And my list isn't limited. There are a lot more of the, the popular ones that I can find. I mean, um, ourselves, uh, three of us, uh, you know, have Cartesian Z gantry printers. That's one of the most cheapest ones that you're going to find on the market. And a lot of what you see newbies run to, to, to start with, and they're great, great printers. I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're not always the fastest, but you know, you go and you spend three times the money and you'll, you'll get an increase in, in quality, you know, 10% or so. So there's not really that big of a, of a gap between these cheap ones and the, the really good ones that are available today. But, you know, those, um, those Cartesian uh, Z gantries are, are one of the, the biggest. Um, when it comes to the Cartesian printers, you know, the bed slingers that everybody's talking about, uh, some of the newer ones that are coming out now are, are these, these belt printers. Have you guys seen any of the stuff that people have printed with some of those? I haven't. No, like printing swords and stuff like that with pretty. That it's definitely like be fun. It's definitely not the kind of printer that you would use for like your your typical at home go to machine. <laughs> you definitely want to have something other than a belt printer. You know, the belt printer only works for certain items, but it's it's a it's a pretty neat thing. And um, you know, for when it comes to size and needing to build bigger things, a lot of people would have gone to a Delta in the past for large items because a Delta printer is all about Z height. You can have a, pr a Delta printer that goes from floor to ceiling and be completely functionable for that full length. And that way you get that kind of height out of it, you know, but, um, but with these new belt Cartesian printers that are coming out there, they're pretty neat. And while I was uh, looking up some of the names here, I came across a Cartesian printer that moved the bed in the Z-axis instead of the gantry. And that was kind of a, a weird looking setup. And I only put that on there because it wasn't popular, just something that I had noticed that I don't think anybody had done. You know, there's a lot of different ways that people have built printers just on their own uh, to, you know, that work in totally weird ways. But that was one of the ones that, that I seen a, a Chinese company. I don't remember which one it was producing. It wasn't a name that I recognized as far as the make, though. But it was, it was pretty impressive. So, you, are you talking like the uh, continuous print type printer that we touched on last week, or is it? No, no. the The Z Gantry one operates a lot more like a, a Core XY or an HBot printer, where the the bed itself goes down. Okay. On our Cartesians, the whole Z gantry goes up, you know. Right. But on these ones here, it's the the bed itself, while it's slinging, also moves down. It was kind of a, a strange setup, but. Um, so does the extruder move, other than the, X Y? Uh, no, the extruder doesn't move. The extruder only moves X. Okay. And then the bed itself moves the Y and the Z. It's still a bed slinger in the Y. And then the Z axis is the bed, it's the gantry for the bed lowering. 
So that sounds fascinating. I'll have to yeah, look it, it up. But uh, you know, along those other ones there, I mean, me personally, I have got my eyeballs set on getting a nice Core XY printer. You know, those ones there are just much more stable, but massive. That's kind of like the next step up from the Cartesian ones that we got. But they're uh, uh, getting, you know, more popular. And it seems like a, a printer that will outlast our Cartesian printers by far with just the way they're made. I mean, Frank's got his entire uh, gantry crane stabilized with a 45 degree bar and i've been seeing a lot of other printers come with that nowadays um i think uh, chris i don't think yours does does it nope yeah mine didn't mine either just, mine just got the dual yeah mine mine just has the dual uh ball screws for the z yeah and uh, i can't speak for the early versions of the cr10 i think the generation one didn't have those support members but I think the version two and mine, the version three do. So straight from the factory, they're supplied by Creelty. Yeah, that and, makes sense. And see, that's the other thing is they're not particularly fixed per se because they're tie rods. So if you need to, you know, move your, uh, your, your uh, like the entire gantry. The, yes. That's the word I'm looking for. If you need to move the whole uh, Z gantry back just just a smidge, it's just a, a very small adjustment on those tie rods. Well, the screw that actually goes in these ones, they're not, none of them are reverse threaded. So I can't just spin the tie rod just a little bit. What I have to do is detach it, and then it's limited by one half a turn because it's oh. just an eyeball at either end. Um, that's still, you know, realistically is a lot of control you can have over that if you need to shift it. But it's but, a lot um, of work to adjust it a little bit yeah. here and there. Yeah. Almost to the point that it's preventatively expensive. Well, I got thinking on that too, because uh, the other day when you we saw that your printer was set up that way, I got thinking like, why, why would you even need something like that? Because, I mean, the X carriage itself is moving, you know, the left and right. And you, you, those stabilizers for your gantry would have nothing to really do with that. But then I got thinking about it even more is that on our heads, most of the time, the carriage is hanging in front of the entire gantry, not in the center of the gantry. So as that head is swinging back and forth, it does pull the gantry, you know, it twists the gantry from from left to right as it's running. So a printer like Frank's, I could see why that would stabilize it quite a bit. And if I ever start running into any issues with, you know, my uh, my print quality when I'm printing along that x-axis where you would see that, that might be something to look into doing. And I know there's a lot of places out there that have made components so you can add stuff like what, you know, Frank's printer has. But I thought that was a, a neat way, a neat thing that a lot of these um, Cartesian bed slingers need to be start making being start made the way Frank's printers being made. And I can see a lot of value in the Z axis, especially the higher Z axis is. If as it gets higher, it's putting more weight at the top of the gantry and I can see that setting it off just a little bit. Yeah. So if you're printing something that's three to 400 millimeters tall, you don't want the weight to offset any of those layers to any degree that would be noticeable. Yeah, you got a good point. And, and having it starting to, to oscillate would really start magnifying that movement and make it quite visible in the print. So something to keep in mind if you got one of those old Cartesian bed slingers. Well, I was thinking that something that might make it at least smoother would be to have pressurized shocks rather than tie rods. But tie rods are cheaper. Yeah, and you don't want any movement. You want to kind of restrict the movement as much as possible where a shock would allow a little bit of movement you know while restricting it exactly I, I would expect the shock to absorb some movement whereas the tie rod would restrict it yeah, yeah that exactly yeah, okay but you know looking through the rest here you know the the core xy is a big one i mean the what makes that one so darn fancy is that like the single belt structure for the x and y coordinates and there's no way to get backlash on a core XY printer when you're changing directions on the head. It's an amazing system. And 
complicated as hell to plot. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of other printers down here that are even worse than that, but it kind of blows my mind on that one. And and from what I found, the HBOT is very similar to a Core XY, but without that belt structure, I don't see any reason why you even have an HBOT printer when Core XY is an option. Cause it's the same kind of uh, a cage setup. It's the same designer printer. It's just running the belts a slightly different way that, that isn't nearly as effective as the Core XY. But if that were true, then HBOT wouldn't exist, and it does. So I'm definitely missing something to why why it would be there it's not a price issue or anything like that i'm sure but uh but then we got the the delta printers i talked about you know those ones there are off operate in a very confusing way too with the three separate z axes to control them yeah those ones are pretty neat and they're amazing to watch we were talking earlier about um uh, printers or kevin's sla printer being a very uh boring one to watch uh, if you ever sit, get a chance to sit down and watch a Delta print, uh, our FDMs are going to look boring as hell after you see a Delta print. But uh, then there was there was two other ones that I came up with that I found that were kind of along the popular range that are really neat designs. Have you guys heard of a SCAR printer before? I haven't. This is something that, that the X and Y is formed by having two arms that connect to the head uh, uh, like two arms side by side that go out that are on either side of the build plate that go out and meet over the build plate and by controlling uh, uh, having those arms have one pivot in the middle there that controlling the just the left and right movement of those two arms you can form the entire xy coordinate system over the build plate and uh, the simplicity, like it's much more computational to drive, I'm sure. But the simplicity of the hardware, I thought, why aren't we using stuff like this more often? We were always looking for cheaper ways to make this. And right now, the Cartesian bed slingers is as cheap as you can get, especially if you just got like a single arm Cartesian bed slinger. There's a name for that. It, I lose it. I don't remember what it is. But, you know, it's just where you got the one arm on a Cartesian on, on your uh, Z gantry. But um, these uh, these SCAR printers are amazingly simple with just the, the the two motors direct drive. There's no belts or anything like that, and then you can have a uh, a Z uh, access to to drop the bed, um, or put both of those arms on a gantry to raise them um, to <laughs> form a very cheap printer. But then I got thinking about it. We're all using these uh, NEMA 17s to drive everything, and their precision is great on a belt driven system but when you only have 45 degrees of movement to use you can't really direct drive that on a stepper motor with great precision so you'd have something geared down or something like that which introduces backlash and i think there's a lot of good reasons why we haven't seen that kind of thing but that brings into consideration the robot arm printers which are exactly what you think they are. It's a printer head at the end of a robot arm. And we've seen videos of those things showing their precision and how amazing it is. Like in car production and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I could see those being quite useful, but the arms, I'm assuming, could be quite expensive for those kind of... Uh, it's, what do you call it, a linear motor that operates in a circle, but isn't a rotating motor. It's like what they use on arms and stuff like that for those motors. Remember what they're called. Oh, is it the uh, the ball screw or whatever? No. I actually just was introduced to this idea this week. Uh, uh, think about um, like Spot, the robotic dog that we've been seeing a, a lot about. Uh, like what drives its uh, joints? those kind of motors or what drives the joints of a robot arm. You know, those can be very, very precise, those kinds of motors. So stuff like that, I'm sure are being used in these SCAR printers and making them as precise as, you know, some of our belt driven gantries. And uh, then there's those polar printers, which are the ones where the bed spins. Have you guys seen any one of those? I Just haven't. The, the one arm that goes out over a spinning bed and it, yeah, it operates instead of an X and Y, it operates on a 
what is it, an R and a, um, a distance from R. The, well, the radius and the moment of inertia. Which, whichever one it is, yeah, it's the one that operates on radius. And I haven't seen one of those personally either, but, you know, all those are FDM printers, and they're all some neat ways of driving things. But I think we're going to be stuck with these um, Cartesian uh, Z gantries a lot. I think they kind of found the easy, cheaper way to be able to do these. And the precision that we can get out of these very cheap printers is 10, 20% under what these professional $100,000 units that... Uh, um, kind of like, kind of like how we're still using uh, bubble jet printers, you know, forty years on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think we're not going to see them, those Cartesian ones go away anytime soon. But I think I'm okay with that. They're they're, they're good printers. They they do well. So talking about the polar printer, I almost yeah. wonder if, especially if your build plate isn't very big, if that would limit your ability to print certain things because it would have to have a hole in the middle i don't think you necessarily have to have a hole in the middle and you could always print offset too um so you wouldn't have to have the the dead center you know middle of your item be in the middle of the bed maybe i'm thinking of it as like a single gantry polar is Uh, is that what you were saying well yeah Uh, it's a radius right so uh, imagine if you're if you had a single arm Z gantry go out over the center of the bed, and then you got your printer head that can move out over the center of the bed, mm-hmm. and then instead of X, instead of moving the whole thing X across the bed, you instead just rotate the bed itself. I can see where it would have value because if you're looking for something that is as round as possible, that would be <laughs> the way to do it. Yeah, we were just barely talking before we started the podcast here about, you know, the lines in our printers that make up circles and and increasing and decreasing those with micro-stepping or intentionally decreasing them to raise the speed of the printer. And and I bet these polar printers could print pretty darn perfect circles. (laughs) Because all you have to do is set the radius and just print layer on layer. And I, I can actually see a lot of value in that. You know, it'd be um, neat seeing something like that printing in boss mode, printing something large. I bet that would be kind of neat to see. But then again, look at the uh, circular uh, resolution that Kevin's been getting on his, uh, you know, SLA printer. You know, that's and something entirely different, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kevin's printer being an SLA, totally different. I mean, he's working off of an LCD screen. He has pixels. He has yeah. layers and pixels. So, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to get uh, the kind of resolution or precision with an FDM as you can with an SLA. Oh, definitely not. You got you got us beat when it comes to that. You can out precision us all day long, sir. And that kind of goes back to what we mentioned last week. Yeah. If you if someone's getting into 3D printing for statues that they want to print. Um, yep. SLA is probably the route to go just because of the naturally high resolution that you can get from all your prints. Yeah. Um, but, but then again, his prints do take a lot longer. So, well, there's always a trade off, right? Yeah. Um, when you're manufacturing, the choice is speed or quality. Well, quantity, quantity or quality. Yeah. Yeah. He's not right. With 3D printing, we really need to keep in mind we should never be focusing on speed. I mean, right. let's face it. If we got a print that takes us four hours to print, it's th- no different than a print that takes eight hours because we're just going to do it over the night. You know? Or, and, or we're going to fire it off and walk away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so all these people who are trying to print fast, and I mean, it, it's kind of like if you're overclocking a CPU just to see the numbers, just to get it up that high. It's great. You're not necessarily going to be using it at the speeds that you can, you know, accomplish. But if you're getting it at up and pushing it as hard as you can just to see how fast you can push it, by all means, make the printer fly. But when it comes to us printing normal things, you know, when you see that 30 to 50 at the most, you know, millimeters a second, that's a good speed. That's a very good speed. 
Increasing your speed is not going to increase your overall print time anyway, because acceleration keeps the print heads moving slow anyway. So there's no reason behind it. So there's actually another perspective on 3D printing too. You know, the the production value of 3D printing is you can test fit a part before you go into production. So say you're working on motorcycle parts and you want this thing to work just right, but you don't know all the dimensions yet. You can do a workup and print it off in a couple of hours and test fit it as opposed to doing the workup and sending it to the machine shop and having somebody spend an hour with subtractive manufacturing and spending a hell of a lot more money to do it just to get a part that you don't know for certain is the right part. Yeah. And so you're increasing production value because you can test fit and adjust and then go back. And once you get exactly the part that you need, then you go to production and you pay a machinist good money to do the subtractive manufacturing to achieve what would have taken five or six uh, recursions to accomplish. Yeah. And even though most of us in the 3D printer world aren't needing to go to that kind of extremes. One thing that I do think we need to consider, and this this is mostly for the people designing in their own CAD, is to use those assembly functions and form the entire product in the computer and make sure that your, your, your interference parts are gonna uh, uh, fit properly with what you're expecting in the real world before you even print. And then there's the whole thing of just taking a, um, a couple layers of the print, you know, like like in Kira, putting the part below the print bed that you want to test up to the print bed and then letting it print for a couple of layers so that you can test just that particular part of interference without wasting any plastic. I yeah. mean, for I mean, it, it's it's great to be able to use 3D printing in that kind of commercial matter to save you um, from from the real cost of actual mm-hmm. production. But for some of us people who are just using the 3D, the 3D print is the final product. We should also be taking that step back, doing the same exact concept of, of you know, commercial 3D printing as, well, now you're doing test, test fit components and 3D model, you know, modeling it in, as an assembly before it even makes its way to the printer for a final piece. Uh, we're not wasting as much plastic as, as you know, we tend to waste. Well, and I took that approach with my bench. I keep going back to that, but it's the biggest project I've done recently. That's um, nice one. I, yeah. test, I tested the flexibility and the breaking point of all the major parts that were going on the, the desktop before I just went in and printed everything. And I was only printing one bracket at a time and then breaking it and trying to gauge how hard it was to break it. And I stopped when I tried to break it and it pulled the the piece of wood that I had screwed to my workbench off of the workbench. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is strong enough to hold a desk. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go back to Chris's comment though about the time it it can take. Um it also there is all another side of that is that with with my printer the more layers is what takes longer so i could for example it would take me exactly the same amount of time to print one of those picks that i talked about that i'm going to use as the tokens uh for the dedications i i'm actually going to do 27 of them because you know 27 no 28 um Four times seven, whatever that is. It's the weekend. I turned my brain off. Um, (laughs) But it'll take me exactly the same amount of time to print all 28 of those picks as it would to print one. That's a neat thing about SLA that you got. That's a neat concept. Because it's it's printing the entire layer all at the same time. Yeah. So instead of having having to deposit your the the plastic on each pick individually it's just going to do it all at once and be done with it and like i did the the speed of light well not well sure but it's (laughs) it's a few seconds per layer like i think i've got this set right now to nine and a half seconds per layer 
one layer being you know 0 0.05 millimeters thick so that's where the that's where you lose your time is making sure that each layer is sufficiently cured to the layer before it well and if any of the rest of us were to print at 0 0.05 millimeters <laughs> 0 0.05 let me be specific it there it, it would take easily twice as long I would take me five times as long to print because like you were saying, the print head would have to cover all of the distance where it's depositing material. It wouldn't be depositing as much. So it wouldn't be exactly five times as long, but it would be preventatively expensive for me to try to hit that resolution in the first place. So, yeah. um, but being able to do the whole layer at the same time, has definitely got some staying power too. Yeah. And yeah, that does make sense. Those spiders I was talking about, I got what, three, six, nine, twelve per build plate. And yeah, I got them printing one at a time because I'm printing them out of TPU, you know, string city. You don't want to be going from one print to the next print to the next print for a single layer. You're just going to string everything together. So it's best just to print the one and then move on to the next one and print it, the next one and print it. But I have to put down, each one is still printing individually, even though it's printing it all on the same same deck. You know, it's, It would be wonderful to be able to print one piece the same amount of time it takes me to print 12 pieces. That's definitely a benefit with SLA. Well, yeah. and I would say TPU is better with that. Once you get it dialed in, you don't string as much. No, but it still is gonna it's still gonna take say you're doing nine pieces, it's gonna take nine times as long because the print head needs to cover that distance for all nine of those pieces. Yeah. Exactly. So does the SLA printer then it works like a uh kind of like a laser etcher where it just runs one whole surface at a time with the laser? Yeah, uh, but it, it's a screen. So it's even better because with the laser etcher, you still have the, the movement speed of the laser that you have to worry about. But with this, it's just the whole screen lights up where it's supposed to, and it cures the resin wherever that happens. Uh, Chris, oh. have you ever played with screen printing at all? Like no. for t-shirts or anything like that? Uh, the way screen printing works is you have your... It can be like regular uh, screen door screen. You have it in a frame and you lay your emulsion down in a shape. And then once it's cured, you put it down on whatever you're going to print on and you put the ink down, you run your board across and make sure that everything is spread out correctly. And when you pull it up, the shape that you designed is a void in the ink. Okay, so the SLA, from what I understand, Kevin, please feel free to correct me. The LCD screen that puts out the light that cures the resin is like a screen printer per level. Right, exactly. It's doing the entire layer all at once, whether it is curing the entire layer or just one single pixel of that layer. Oh, yes. So it's a lot different than the old resin printers that would use a laser light like light like that would light. move over the space yeah, or whatever right yeah, and those would those do. do still exist um like uh there was uh several years ago one that i had found that had done a, a successful kickstarter it was called the peachy printer it um it was an sls printer it would have the laser going across and it like had a salt water drip to raise the level of the resin instead of um, having a build plate that it would adhere to. It, it was unique in that it would um, build the, print the thing right side up. Uh, like for what I've got, I've got the metal build plate that goes down and it makes contact with the bottom of the resin vat and the uh, resin gets cured to that. And so the model is upside down when it's done printing um but yeah that one had the laser spinning and i think those still exist but this is definitely 
an improvement on that idea because it uses the same kind of resin that is UV sensitive will will cure if it's uh, exposed to 405 nanometers of light. That's the wavelength it uses. But yeah, it's to me it's it's brilliant. And um, I saw another an ad for another one yesterday that's coming to Kickstarter, and I I struggle to see the point because it's another SLA printer, but it fits in the palm of your hand. The, the build dimensions of it are ridiculously small. They're like, um, let's see, where, where was that? It's, yeah, it's 30 by 40 millimeters X, Y, and 60 millimeters Z. So what do they expect you to use something that small for? Uh, I think Mini figs. Yeah, people are saying Legos. it would be perfect. Use it for... to print Legos. <laughs> people are saying, "Well, that would be perfect for printing D and D minis," and and I say, "I mean, yeah, you could do that." But somebody else made the comment of, "Or you know, I could just use my Elegoo Mars and print twelve D and D minis at the same time rather than doing it one by one." I imagine the LCD screens and stuff they'd be using for that would be more expensive too, because I'm mean, like, your printer benefits from using a standard production cell phone screen, doesn't it? Like, it's pretty much that size, isn't it? Uh, it's a it's a little bigger than that, but yeah, it's it's the screen is pretty inexpensive. Mm. Um, but with this thing, I did that was one thing I noticed was the price. They were saying that the the early bird discount is ninety nine dollars. Well, that's what I paid for my printer that is <laughs> much larger. Yeah. So kind of going back, it's probably more the size of a small tablet for the yeah. LCD screen on your printer. Um, or maybe a mid-sized tablet. I, a small tablet would be... But I also have a small build plate. Um, okay. Like it's it, this really is a a printer for somebody who is just getting into SLA printing. Okay, it's um, it's it's inexpensive, so that's great. It works right out of the box. That's wonderful. Um, other people have talked about starting out with the Photon or the Photon S, and then later on um, upgrading to an Elegoo Mars or uh, one of the bigger ones when they decide that their build plate just isn't big enough for what they want to do. And I've run into that issue with some of the things I've done is trying to, you have to, I have to kind of strategically place things to get them on the build plate just right. Yeah. Kind of like Andy's uh, cell phone. Uh, oh, cell yeah. phone uh, cover. Yeah. Yeah, and I need to make it a little bit bigger, too, because I, I don't know if, uh, I mean, the, the listeners won't be able to see, but you can see my, it's very squared off at the very top of the cell phone where that living hinge is. That's because I really needed, like, maybe two more millimeters longer, and it's outside my build parameters. But I can change my build parameters and push the printer a little bit outside its uh, manufactured dimensions and pull it off that way. That's not something that I think, SLA really has too much of an option of because you're really restricted by the size of your screen. Yeah. And two millimeters is not as bad as I think that mine has a five millimeter border. So, you know, sense. if I need to push it, I can override some stuff, but yeah. uh, two millimeters shouldn't be too bad for you. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, what, was there any other, um, systems that you wanted to talk about while we're here uh not really so much systems but i did want to kind of talk about slicers okay um, until today i have been using the uh the slicer that came with the printer it's the photon workshop and it's not very impressive um, i just barely today discovered the part where i can with the uh, automatic supports where I can adjust the support density. Its default is 30%. And this is, I don't know how much you have to deal with supports 
with FDM printers, but with with SLA, it, you're going to have to have supports on everything. Yeah, and we can we can pick and choose. Um, like I know Andy actually pointed me at a tool to help me identify an angle mm -hmm. that is optimal for my machine. Mm -hmm. So until I get a certain overhang, I don't really need to do supports. Right. A quick side note to that. I did move to a 0.6 nozzle from a 0.4 and that increased my range up to almost like 75 degrees before needing support. If you ever huh. do move up to a, the larger uh, nozzles, you can get that extra that extra overhang without needing support. But but yeah, with what you print, you can't print directly on your bed, correct there, Kevin? I, I could, but it makes it really difficult to remove from the bed. Um, the recommendation is to offset your, your Z axis so that the bottom of the print or the model is at least five millimeters above the build plate when you're slicing it. So you have to have supports for everything. Otherwise, it's just going to cling to the, the bottom of your um, resin vat, and it'll ruin your theft really quickly if you do that a lot. And never really build anything. Yeah. <laughs> so can you replace your fat pretty easy? Like, that's just a film that's on the bottom of the vat, isn't it, that covers the screen? Yes. Uh, and it, I, I've only changed it twice since Christmas time, and the the second time was actually just this last Thursday, and it took. I was distracted while I was doing it with conversations with my wife and kids, and even with that, I think the whole process took me fifteen minutes to bad. change it out. Yeah. Um, so anyway, as I was saying, I the default for this support is 30. So for example, I'm printing this piece for this, the altar and I went to do the automatic supports and it uh, put one support on this thing. <laughs> and then uh, I've had issues with the hollowing because um, there's the infill option, but the, the infill for this is a series of hexagonal columns. And the point, the point of hollowing is so that you don't have a whole bunch of wasted resin trapped inside your model, especially because yeah. if, it, if it ever cracks or if there are tiny holes in it or whatever, that liquid resin will leak out. And it's not the healthiest thing to be around. Liquid <laughs> resin is toxic, so um, you don't, you don't want to get it on your skin too much. You don't want to breathe its fumes you don't want it leaking out all over surfaces that you're going to be eating on for sure um and so you can punch a hole in it but the problem that i had was that i had put holes to drain the resin out in in some of the things that i printed like when i printed a, a pretty large dice tower and uh there was still liquid resin trapped inside of it so when it fell and pieces cracked a whole bunch of resin came pouring out. It was a mess because, and I had hollowed it, but I used that infill. And so the parts that got drained were not where the resin was trapped. <laughs> so this huge complaint that I had with this one. Um, then, so other people in the Photon S Facebook group that I'm a member of uh, recommended lychee. I didn't care for that one because I couldn't uh, change the, um, exposure time for the bottom layers. So the way this works is you have to have a certain number of bottom layers that have an increased exposure time so that things will adhere to the build plate. Um, for example, I typically go with six bottom layers at 70 seconds per layer, whereas my normal exposure time is somewhere between eight and 10 seconds, depending on what resin I'm using. That's a big difference. Yeah, well, different opacities of resin will cure at different rates. Um, so it's always it's always recommended when you get a new kind of resin to do um, the resin exposure um, rate file test, and it's 
for for anybody who has any experience with photography, like um, when I was in high school, I took a black and white photog couple of actually black and white photography classes. And when you're going to develop your pictures, you first print off what's called an exposure strip um, to increasing more and more parts of the uh, photographic paper until you can find the optimal exposure time. Well, that's yeah. what this RERF is. is it's just an, a, an exposure test that your printer recognizes. Anything that is called RERF is going to treat it like that, and it will expose different parts of the plate for different amounts of time. And then you can look at that afterward and see what the optimal exposure time is. And if you've got like a, a clear resin, it's going to cure a lot faster than a black resin because the light penetrates better and stuff. So anyway, um, I was talking about the supports and the infill. So with lychee, I couldn't adjust the bottom exposure time or layers at all. And it didn't have an infill option when um, printing, when hollowing out the model. And that's not always the best idea either, because what you're really looking for that you need to support is what they call islands. Um, that's anything that's hanging out over the rest of the model. You need to have it supported, otherwise it's just going to stick to your FEP when it gets to that part. So if you've hollowed it out, now you have to support not only the bottom of the model, but what's on top of the model and on all the sides. And so infill is really convenient for doing that. Otherwise you have to go in and make sure that all of your islands are supported on the inside of the um, hollowed out thing. So I, I just didn't like that this didn't have infill. Another person suggested using the Chitu box slicer, and I really like that one. It's got a grid system for the infill, so it's like um, it's like the challenge cube. It's like the classic AnyCubic um, test file. You can look that up, um, but it it's just got like wiry cubes made of resin but it doesn't trap anything anywhere. So punching holes in it is actually a useful thing. And um, I like the, the smart supports. They make sure that the supports don't run alongside the model anywhere as opposed to this Photon Workshop. Um, I've got lines on some of the things I printed because they're supports that I wasn't able to remove because they're like fused to the model. Okay. It's, so you've got like just this random bar looking thing going up and you're like, well, yeah, that's great. Not really. <laughs> so Chitty maybe that, though. more post-production with SLA then. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Cause when you're done printing with SLA, you have to clean your print because it's going to have residual resin on it anyway. So you have to clean it in, um, unless you get the water washable kind that's more expensive, the default kind, you have to clean in alcohol. Um, the, the user manual says 95% ethanol, but you, other people say that you can get away with using 90% isopropanol. In any event, that's more toxic chemicals that you get to play with. And of course, if you get the ethanol option, um, what I got, I got a gallon of the stuff off Amazon. It's 95% or no, I think it was 99% ethanol, but then they put um, other things in it to make it so that if you drink it, it'll kill you or at least cause you to go blind. So uh, it's denatured alcohol and yeah, it just gets all over the plate. It can get all over the place and uh, it's hazardous to your health. And then once you've done cleaning that, then you still have to cure it more because what you're doing on the printer, it'll give you kind of a soft cure, but it's designed so that you can first remove the supports while it's still kind of soft and the supports come off relatively easy. 
and then finish the curing to make it actually hard and strong. Okay. Kevin, I was hoping that you would help sell people on SLA, and it just sounds like that's more complex than any of us wants to deal with. Oh, but no, it's <laughs> great. It, it's when you get the when you look at what you have printed afterward, you can see the high quality of it. It's far and away better. Like my sister has a, a board game called Wingspan, and it's it's all about birds, and it came with like cardboard tokens. And she saw on Etsy that somebody was selling 3D printed plastic birds. And she said, well, that looks nicer than, um, than what I've got with these little cardboard things. And so she bought them. Well, I looked at them and said, those look like crap. <laughs> and she said, I thought they looked nice. And I said, no, they were clearly done with an FDM printer. <laughs> um, I, I could print something that would actually look like birds. So you're saying that the resolution is worth the headache? Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, that's what we were talking about in the first place. Is you know, is it worth the trouble? <laughs> <laughs> yes. What are you using the printer for in the first place? Right. Yeah. Right. I guess from here, I'm going to take over and talk about some of the systems that I've come across. Yeah. What ones do you like? Are you going to start with the cement, the cement house printers? No, actually, I was going to start with this system that I actually just heard about in the last couple of weeks, where this printer takes a stack of images and prints by voxel. So it's a multicolor printer, and a voxel is a 3D pixel. Okay, So you take this sliced image, and it'll place the color in its individual voxel at the layer thickness and you can print you know whatever you want with whatever resolution for the picture that you can do with your 3d voxel print and not have to like with kevin's sla you get the one color and then you need a paint and redesign from there for the aesthetic that you're looking for there is one kind of downside and it's a very expensive very high production system so the average amateur at home is not necessarily gonna have this system in their home yeah just the whole idea was fascinating to me how does it deposit the plastic is it like a, a powder and then centers it or or how does it uh, yeah, I, I think I might have seen an ad for the same thing, but what I saw was it had f like three or four different colors that it could print in, and it, I think it had just different nozzles that it would use. Okay, like an FDM printer with multiple filaments yeah. going in? Okay. Yeah, I saw, I saw an ad for that the other day. I didn't really look much into it because I can't really afford another 3D printer right now. <laughs> sure. Another system, kind of system that's been fascinating to me is the, um, what they can do in the environment with some of these metal 3D printers is they can have the environment filled with the dust that is at the right uh, consistency for a variety of metals. And then when it gets centered to the top layer, it is the alloy that they ex they need at each layer sounds unique um so honestly from there in my head I, it was the uh powder bed 3d printing is fascinating to me um where they what they typically do with those is they lay out the material that you're going to print with per layer so you actually have no supports with this and it, um the original print bed, the print surface actually goes deeper. And then you have a laser that, uh, like if you're doing nylon, it melts that layer of the nylon to the layer beneath it. Wow. And um, the problem with it is, is once it's exposed to the oxygen and all that, it starts to oxidize. So okay. you can only reuse it like once or twice. But most of these systems that you buy will actually mix new nylon with the old nylon. Hmm. 
Um, but like I said, there's so there's no okay. uh, support because it just goes into a box full of the material, and only the places where you're printing get added to. So the rest of the powder that's in there acts as the support as it goes deeper. And um, they can do that with softer materials like nylon or plastic or anything like that, but they can also do it with metal. If you've got a, a, uh, a metal powder that you want to use for the whole part, then you can do it that way. And then once the part is laid out, basically, then you send it through the furnace to center it all together and all that. Um, oh, I've heard of that. That's cool. Um, so one of the things that really drew me into 3D printing was structural 3D printing, where um, they've got some that has got a gantry, just like an oversized uh, Cartesian printer, where it's laying down concrete in the design and goes up for each level and all that. And some of them are more um, like your polar design that you were talking about earlier. But it, it's really just a, uh, it's got a mixing station above the extruder that mixes the concrete oh, and the water together as needed to print. And um, those have been around for many years. Like I was first exposed to my first one, like hmm. six or seven years, just kicking around on YouTube. But uh, one that I, another one I just heard about, I haven't seen how it works yet is a powder bed cement printer that even work that's so much sand <laughs> that would be so much material yeah i agree that would be that's assuming that it works the way that a regular powder bed does and i i don't understand why they would use the description if it doesn't but i would accept that maybe they're quote unquote printing um like structure parts, like I-beams or something like that, as opposed to printing the whole structure. Yeah. But then it, you lose the value of saving on fuel and materials and all of that stuff by still shipping these concrete components to the site where they're going to get used. And some of the other structural 3D printers I've seen will actually even use materials on site where you can find the clay and the sand and all that and just use those materials to build the machine or build the structure. Okay. So you're not even spending um, shipping for raw materials most of the time with that kind of printer. I wonder if that could be used for like Adobe and stuff like that. Um, that was actually one of the materials that they were showing in the video. But yeah, it, it, when you don't have to pay to ship materials to the site and you can just use an excavator to pull raw material out of the ground and you're going to level it anyway. So you're just taking whatever is left over from leveling the site and using it to build the structure. Um, there was one side effect where they were saying that the structures weren't really expected to last for like a long time. 50 years might be a very long time to expect these structures to last, but if you're not spending a whole lot on it and you don't plan to live there more than say 10 years, then you can tear it down and rebuild it in three or four days, <laughs> run new electrical and piping that's modern and have somebody new move in for $20,000. And so it's expected to be renewable, but it's also expected to be inexpensive to erect a new structure as needed too. So yeah. um, that's neat. Yeah. And, and, all this structural stuff is really what drew my attention to 3D in the first place. Um, yeah, it's just fun to me. Well, your first major project was something quite structural. You were making all the adapters to make this uh, this wood desk that turned out really nice. That's fair. So it does make sense. 
Yeah. Well, I feel like it's probably a good time to call it. We've been doing this for an hour, and after I pull out all the the empty space, it'll probably still be pretty close to an hour, unless anyone's got anything else to say. Not really. That sums up just about everything I know about printers, but then don't know everything about these printers. (laughs) Sure, sure. All right. Well, we'll call it then. For everyone who's been listening, thank you very much. If you like what you heard and you want to get the next episode, please feel free to subscribe. That's how we know how well we're doing. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so on our Facebook group at Amateur 3D Pod. And until next time, going offline.